The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the double-plus-good novelist Sandra Newman, whose new book is Julia, which is a retelling of George Orwell's 1984 from the point of view of its female protagonist, Julia. Sandra, welcome. Thanks. Hi, Sam. Can I start by asking, I guess, the really obvious question is, what was the germ of this? When did it occur to you that there was sort of space in Orwell's book for another story? Well, it's funny because um, I actually, it didn't occur to me. I actually got a phone call from my agent who said that George Orwell's estate was looking for somebody to write this book and would I be interested? So it's funny because I I always feel like this is a a great confession. It wasn't actually my idea. It was their idea. Or you could also say it's an idea that's been in the air for forever and kind of exists in the minds of at least a certain subset of people who read 1984. At a certain point, like a few weeks ago, I went and looked up 1984 fan fiction and a good third of it is written from the point of view of Julia and it's about investigating the point of view of Julia. So it's something that's been kind of like about to happen for a very long time and it became much more about to happen recently because 1984 is coming out of copyright in Britain. And they decided they would get ahead of that and find somebody who they were comfortable with to write the book in a way that was like not disrespectful to Orwell's legacy. And, you know, and I should say they didn't try to control it really at all. Like once they had approved me and, you know, made the announcement that I was going to write the book, they did not meddle at all. There was not a word. Quite often. I mean, maybe the answer is the fact that it was commissioned by the Orwell estate, but that's qualified by the fact that you say they didn't want to control it. Quite often when we get these kind of reversionings, I'm thinking of things like Wide Sargasso Sea maybe being the kind of Locker's mm. Classicus of it, there is that sense that the author is sort of writing in some sense in reproof of the gaps and aporia in the original book. I mean, do you feel you're writing in a complimentary way to Orwell or is there a bit of saying, this is what you missed, this is a failing of your book? Yeah, well, I think definitely... I think of it as a sort of a friendly reproof. I love Orwell. You know, I I like to think that although he would in some ways disapprove of my book, we could have a friendly argument about it, like over drinks. That's how I, I kind of imagine it. And that neither of us would go away entirely unconvinced, perhaps. But really what I felt... Um, So they called me up and asked me if I wanted to write the book. And I thought, well, of course I want to write it, but can I write it? Is it going to be a good book? I'm not going to, I'm not going to write something that's embarrassing under this much attention and have it be, you know, have them, whatever. The potential for for catastrophe was high. So, so I went off and and reread 1984. And what happened was that it was one of those things where, you know, you see, like, if you've ever been looking for a job and you see a job advertised and you think, oh, well, you know, that's a good job. I should want that job. But then you go to the interview and you love everyone there and you love the office and you begin to think, 
oh my God, if I don't get this job, what is my life even worth? And it was that kind of experience. I was reading 1984 and I began to write the first pages of my book while I was still reading chapter one. And I had this, like at that time, I had a vague memory of the character of Julia being something I'd struggled with on my, well, really, really it was my second reading, my first reading as an adult. I struggled with the character of Julia and it affected my feelings about Orwell in a way I wasn't comfortable with. And then, so I kind of wiped it from my memory because I, I'm, I'm one of those people, I, I respond most strongly to Orwell's nonfiction. I love his nonfiction, um, like every part of it. And it kind of formed me as a political subject when I was like 19, 20 years old. I read it all like back to back. So reading it, reading 1984 now though, as kind of a middle-aged person. I have a lot more perspective on all of these things. And I have a lot more, I think, capacity to square the fact that somebody who I deeply, deeply admire also might have a blind spot without thinking that I must be wrong and perhaps all women are stupid, you know, or all women are negligible and not really... Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to like the, the kind of gaps in 1984 that I think a lot of women find difficult. But so I was I was responding to this partly from that feeling, but also just partly from a feeling that the character of Julia is enigmatic. And it almost feels as if he had intended or considered writing more about her, that he had considered that there was another veil to be taken away, that she might actually, I think a lot of a lot of critics have thought this, she might actually have been secretly working for the Thought Police all along. There are lots of hints of that, that Winston kind of strangely never considers that as a possibility or a risk during their entire relationship. But there are lots of reasons to think that might be the case. And also, why is she in love with him? That's never really investigated. Um, he finds it improbable at first, Winston does, but then it's just forgotten. Um, and it's and it's kind of strange because she doesn't behave as if she's in love with him during the early period of their relationship. And he sort of loathes her, doesn't he? Before they yes, he he loathes her. He one of the things that's that would you know be considered problematic, I think, by contemporary readers is that there's a a moment when he feels at risk because she sees him outside Charrington shop. And he immediately jumps to imagining not just murdering her, but raping her and then murdering her. So it, his, his loathing of her is pretty extreme and pretty pointed. But as soon as she's interested in him sexually, and I think this is one of like Orwell's great jokes in the book, that all vanishes and he thinks she's fantastic. <laughs> Do you think that is a purposeful joke? I mean, you know, that, that if you like, the enigmatic quality of her is a purposive thing rather than just she's thin or that the idea of Winston wanting to rape and murder her and then flipping on that when the moment she's interested in him is a kind of wry joke on a particular sort of masculinity or just the enactment of that. You know, sometimes it's hard to tell. It's hard to really speculate about an author's intentions without knowing. And um, as far as I've been able to determine from my reading, we just don't know. We don't know what his intentions were about this. I do think... Like, I don't find the character of Julia thin. I find it inconsistent. She always feels very alive on the page. She feels like a real person. But the different things that she does, that they don't really add up. They don't make sense together. And so 
And sometimes she's saying things and you think, well, that's that really feels like something someone would say. But Winston's understanding of why she's saying these things, what I would say is that it it reads like a woman managing a man, like a woman telling a man what he would want to hear. And I'm not sure if this is Winston or Orwell, but he just takes it at face value. So I'm not sure if that's something like Orwell had had a lot of experience of women managing him and he never saw through it. It's impossible (laughs) to know. Or he did see through it and he just didn't want Winston to see through it because in a lot of places he has Winston not seeing things. And I think that's, you know, I'm not sure if he meant us to laugh out loud at it, you know, like the the things that Winston thinks about proles, for instance, when Winston is just completely wrong about things. But it does seem to me that there's some humor in the book at Winston's expense. Yeah, and your Julia is certainly more knowing, I think, than Winston, isn't she? Yeah, which also is in, that's in 1984 too. She is more knowing than than Winston in a lot of ways. Do you see your Julia as kind of entirely of a piece, though more fleshed out than the one in 1984? Did you find her surprising you as you wrote her? Did she take you in directions you weren't expecting? I mean, it's interesting. Like, I f- almost feel as if my Julia is a collaboration because I had to keep to the Julia in 1984. She couldn't not be the person who said the lines in 1984, especially since there are some scenes that are the same. And I lifted all the dialogue and used all the dialogue. I couldn't, I couldn't really write like the first scene between Winston and Julia when they first sleep together in, in the countryside and not have them say the same things. They obviously would have to say the same things. So... Uh, One of the good things about having the Orwell estate on my side was that I was allowed to do that. I could just use all the dialogue. But that also meant that my Julia had to be, like, if she suddenly began to speak dialogue that didn't sound like the same person, it wouldn't work. So I had to keep to Orwell that much. I don't think that he would have imagined the backstory for her that that I imagined that was definitely taking it in a different direction. And And I'm sure there are other things that he would have taken exception to. But I do think that she is very much the person in his book. Just a, It's sort of like when, when you know someone a little bit, if you stop and imagine like what, what it's like to be that person, like for that person to have, like to be the subject, not just for that moment, but all their lives, it's inevitably a different person from the person you've met. Do you feel, I mean, it's maybe kind of sort of side question, really. But how, as you were writing this, did you feel yourself kind of feeling warm towards Julia? Or do you feel you've, you've got a, a kind of cold eye on her? Because she makes all sorts of maybe inevitable moral compromises as, as Winston does under the insult mm. ideology. Oh, I really loved her. You know, I thought that she was, um, I mean, the trajectory of the book is sort of her developing a a conscience that's independent of her circumstances. She, I think, she's a person, like, it's funny because I'm actually more like Winston than I am (laughs) like Julia. So, So she's the sort of person who doesn't think that much about politics and doesn't think that much about morality and is just about living her life. And she sort of feels almost as if that's above her pay grade. You know, she's just a person. She's just trying to live her life. She's not. And she kind of scoffs at Winston for having this concern with truth, with like what's right and wrong when there's nothing you can do about it. 
It just seems ridiculous to her. She's a practical person. And over the course of the novel, she finds that that's actually not good enough. And she develops a bit of a an independent mind and, an, and a conscience and, you know, enough distance from the life that she's lived to actually not just feel compassion for other people, she's always felt compassion for other people, but to actually judge and and be angry and form like an idea of the society from the outside. And the idea of the effects of this totalitarianism on women and through women, which I'm wondering how how well you feel Orwell developed that and whether that was one of those gaps into which you had a story. There's a line you have in it that's kind of it just absolutely struck me where you say, she was a prisoner in a body that could be hurt in countless ways, which maybe is in some sense true of all, all women. But was embodiment part of your idea of how, if you like, the big brother totalitarian Ingsoc society would constrain women? Well, yeah, I think in 1984, it's hard to tell if he just didn't have room to go there. As an author who's often judged by other people, I'm, I'm always aware that sometimes like the book just doesn't have space for this whole other story. So, you know, I try not to judge Orwell too harshly for some of the things that just aren't in the book. But he does, he has this tendency in 1984 to create these things like artsem, the artificial insemination, which is supposed to be now the the better improved way of having children. And then he doesn't think about all of the consequences. Like one big blind spot in 1984 is that Winston and Julia have unprotected sex for weeks in a situation where she's not married. And if she gets pregnant, obviously she will either be put in a labor camp or killed. And they never think about it. Like Orwell never thinks about pregnancy as a risk for women in the entire book, even though they're having this unprotected sex. and There's no possibility of birth control in this world. So that's something like to me that, you know, those two things went together. Like if there, you can go and get artificial insemination at any point and become a hero to the party, then if you miss a period, that's what you go and do. And that's right there for you. Like Orwell has all these things that were right there for me as a novelist to write this other novel. And it was kind of great. Like I was the, when I was rereading 1984, thinking about writing this book, there were all of these kind of aha moments when I thought, oh, this is going to be fantastic. That, you know, And I was so grateful to him for inventing all this stuff, like porno sec, like this job that she once had where she's writing pornographic novels for proles. He creates that and then he doesn't imagine any of the novels. Like it's a gift to me. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, have some fun with that. <laughs> yeah. Also, the, in terms of the sort of affordances of Orwell's text for what you're doing, I'm really intrigued that because in that situation, the whole thing's built on lies. You know, mm. you never know in Orwell's book, even whether the Brotherhood actually exists. Yeah. Were you finding something? This is, you know, there's a whole lot of sort of almost built-in unreliable narrator or unknowing narrator available to you? Mm. I mean, one of the things that's very subtly different, I think, between my book and Orwell's book, I mean, I was conscious from the very beginning that I just couldn't write the exact same book. You can't write the same book, but it can't deviate from it in tone so much that it's proceeding from a different philosophy altogether. But one of the things that he does, which is great in 1984 is that he creates a world where you actually never finally know what's real. You don't know if there's a big brother. You don't know if there's a brotherhood. You don't know if O'Brien's whole villain speech is a tissue of lies. You don't know if the things that 
Winston believes to be true about the world are true. You don't know if it's even 1984. You don't know anything. And that's part of his concept of totalitarianism. It's really powerful. And for my book, I could do some of that. But to some degree, for there to be a plot that's distinct from 1984, I mean, when you're reading 1984, you want those questions answered really badly. And it's one of the things that he does to you that he gets away with, that he doesn't tell you. He doesn't tell you. if there's. But you want to know the, the answers to the questions. So like as a person writing a book that you want to be satisfying to the reader that's based on 1984, you know, I'm sorry, but you have to answer some of those questions. <laughs> and so, so I do go there in this book. I was um, going to say, you do also go beyond the end of the story of 1984. And without spoilers, what made you do that? And did you think hard about whether or not to do that? I did. I mean, I think, again, like the ending had to be different. The ending of 1984 is so perfect. It's so great. Like the, he loved Big Brother. I hope that's not a spoiler for anybody. <laughs> but it's the perfect ending. It's, it really, it takes the whole book to a new level and makes its meaning. It's so cruel to the reader. But I couldn't do the same thing. So I had to do something different. And so I couldn't end at that kind of moment of epiphany or anti-epiphany at all. Um, I had to do something that was surprising, I guess. Like an ending has to be, you know, as Aristotle said, you know, (laughs) (laughs) surprising and inevitable. And so I I had to like open another door. And you also, I I mean, again, I hope this is a spoiler. There's a point in the book, it's not the very end, where you kind of flip Orwell's line, you know, the struggle with himself is over. And you have Julia doing that, but the end of her struggle is that she hates Big Brother, not that she loves him. Is that a kind of gender difference of response in your way of reading it? Or is that just too neat an inversion to pass up? Definitely too neat an inversion to pass up. But but also, I I don't think it's gendered so much as it's generational. In 1984, much is made of the difference in their ages and how she's of a a younger generation which grew up knowing how to beat the system. And and she has known no other world, whereas he has like dim memories of the war. And, and, you know, there's just some sense that he has of a different world and she has no concept of another world. And she's like a native of this world, whereas he is a bit of an outsider. Partly because of the kind of book it is, which is a satire utopia where Winston is a little bit more like us than he would really be in real life because that's he's our lens, he's our eye on the world. But anyway, she's not that. She's very much a, a citizen of Oceania. And now I can't remember where we started. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so I really wanted to grapple with like the, the citizen of Oceania who is inevitably infected by the propaganda in a way that forms her personality. She's known no other world. She's lived with this all her life. And so whether or not she believes in any of it, it affects her emotionally. Like her emotional life is tied up with the party in a way that his is not. And her sexual life is tied up with the party as well, isn't it? In a really profound way. Yeah, she has. I mean, I guess like the the main thing, it, it partly comes from like real like the real lives of people living under Stalin who loved Stalin, who could not help but love Stalin, like who saw Stalin as their savior, even if they hated the government. They imagined that if they could only get in to see Stalin and tell him what was really going on, he would fix it for them. There's that thing where you create the father figure and even after you've 
you know, in, like in a real family, no matter how terrible your father is, you can't help on some level always wanting him to come through for you and always imagining that something will happen that will make him come through for you. And so she's that person who actually, he was her father. He's her father figure. She didn't have a father and he's her father. Do the immersion in this world, because you've thought it through so deeply, and for instance, the I mean, I think you more than shape up to Orwell himself in terms of the extraordinary violence of the depredations of their time in, in the Ministry of Love. Mm. Did thinking yourself into this world kind of, you know, mess with your head? Oh, yeah, I was so depressed. <laughs> I was so depressed all like, the whole time I was writing it. I had to write it, I wrote it really intensely. I've been working every minute that I was awake for the past two years or more. But it really, especially in today's political climate, I would like rest from from working and look at the news and it would just feel like an extension of what I was working on. So it really, it really did kind of mess with my head. And I saw everything through the lens of Stalinism. I was always like, I would start talking to my husband and after a minute, I would see this kind of weary look of resistance settle over his features because I was talking about Stalin again. <laughs> and, you know, it just gets into your head. And also, you know, the surveillance, which is something we, we live with and take more or less for granted. But if you're working on this book, you can't help but begin to connect the dots and think, well, it's all very well now that we're being surveilled everywhere we go. But it's not going to be so great when we end up in a situation like, you know, the the people are in in China or actually to be topical in the West Bank where there are cameras everywhere, there are facial recognition systems, and the government is using it to control the citizenry. And we already have all of that in place, at least where I live in Manhattan, we have like video ads everywhere in the street, which also film you and track your phone. So that's in place. And, you know, it's it's owned by the Alphabet Company. That's one of the corporations. It's the Google people yeah. on there, yeah. Yeah, so they already collaborate with the government sometimes, um, with, you know, in giving information to the government. So you're sort of like, we're not there yet, but it would be so easy for us to be there and for it to go farther than it's gone already in places like China where it's still in its infancy and they're still developing the tech. And, and in Russia, for that matter, they also have like the smart city thing, which is about <laughs> the city knowing things about you so that the government knows things about you. So do you find yourself sort of aggressively turning off tracking cookies on your phone and all that sort of thing? I did to some extent, but you kind of can't. Like I, I looked up, like, can you get a phone that doesn't have tracking? And you can, but it's not really going to do anything. <laughs> I mean, so another sense in which Orwell's book seems to have been prophetic is, and gives you a lot to play with, I think, is this idea, of, you know, in fiction, where Julia works, you know, there are sort of punch cards and algorithms and things that are creating fiction. And we're now seeing that actually happening in AI. I mean, did you feel that breathing down your neck as you were writing it? Oh, very much so. And I think this is one of the things I, I mean, I couldn't really go there in my book because there's, it's very defined, like what the fiction machines can and can't do. But I think with actual AI, there's a potential for you to be, <laughs> to be talking to a friend on the phone and the AI just changes what you've said. <laughs> 
so that your friend never hears what you've said if you say the wrong thing. You know, there, there are all of these potential things that a government like the government in 1984 could do to us that were not even imaginable in Orwell's day because they would just seem silly. It would seem ridiculous that that would even be possible. But we're getting to a point where that's almost possible. Although in our own day, that sort of technology, which maybe Orwell didn't anticipate, is in private hands rather than statal hands most of the time, isn't it? It is, but the line between the two is not that firm. You know, where does the government end and Starlink begin? Now you can kind of, money-wise, you can't really draw that line, but in terms of control, you can draw that line. But I think... I think as we go forward, it's potentially, as we've seen before in history, that line could go pretty quickly. And so that's that's what I worry about, you know, as, as someone who spent the last few years, like, reading books about the rise of Hitler and, and Stalinism. Did you do a lot of, as it were, real-world background research? Yeah, to get the yeah. Vibes right the yeah, movie. it ended up that I realized very quickly that I, I did read, like, uh, D.J. Taylor's wonderful biography of Orwell. But um, I realized pretty quickly that I actually didn't need to know that much about Orwell to write this book. I needed to know the book. And for the extra stuff, I needed to know totalitarianism, especially of that period. So that was my reading. I should also parenthetically mention this sort of AI um, fiction department thing. Did you succumb, as so many writers did, to typing your name to the, has my stuff been trained on, has AI been trained on my material? I did, but it hadn't, you know, it was a bit, oh. yeah, a bit hurtful. But. Yes, I was going to say, because a lot of people <laughs> righteously angry, but slightly pleased. I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I know, immediately posting it on the internet. I'm furious that I'm being used to train AI, but AI isn't interested in me, apparently, so. Oh, it will be, I'm sure. I mean, what do you feel about that in terms of, how we negotiate intellectual property when it's not quite like they're using your material in a direct way, but material is being used to train algorithms. I don't think intellectual property is the model that we need for this problem. I I think that's a bit of a mistake, actually, because it is... I'm I'm not a lawyer, so I can't really, like, determine, like, where the lines are drawn legally... But I think that's not really the problem, and I think that's not really the reason that people don't like AI. So, um, and and really, AI's use of people's work is very much like, you know, my use of every writer I've ever read to write a book. It's much more like that than it is like plagiarism. So I don't think that's the model, and I, I don't know how we're going to legally control AI. But I think we need to treat it like a new problem for which we don't have a legal precedent and not like an old problem for which we can use the tools we already have. That sounds wise. The law is always 30 or 40 years behind <laughs> exactly, technology. Yeah. Always. Now, you mentioned reading DJ Taylor's book about Orwell. Um, I'm thinking it's, you'd probably more or less finished this book by the time Anna Funder's book, which is quite recent, has come out. I don't know whether you've read that. But she brings what seems to be, I mean, I haven't read it, but I've read a, mm. a lot about it, a case that says Orwell's feminism was at best patchy, that he was mistreated his wife very seriously, that he, you know, he was really, you know, a tiny bit rapey with a lot of the women mm. he was around. I mean, is that something that, that kind of came into your consciousness or that you sort of knew about all along or that problematised your understanding of Orwell? I did sort of know that. I mean, I think, and I actually, like, 
her book is partly fictional. And so she's leaned into it a bit more than I think the documentation supports. But there's enough in what we know about Orwell to certainly support him being rapey with various women and being a terrible husband and all of that and definitely cheating on his wife as much as he could. And I do think, like, to some degree, that sort of behavior was not universal, but it was certainly normalized. And, you know, well, Orwell was rapey, like Arthur Kessler, I don't Kessler, know. How yeah. I mean, he was accused of literal rape. Yeah, it's still crazy, wasn't it? Um, I can't, I can't remember, I remember the, yeah, anyway, the details, yes. but yeah. But how does that change the text of Darkness at Noon? It doesn't really. It doesn't really. I think that in talking about 1984, especially if you are teaching a class, teaching it in a class, we have to mention the misogyny of it and talk about what that means. And Do you and, think there is misogyny in the book? There's definitely misogyny in the book. It's really, it's really hard to tell to what degree he intends it to be misogyny. Like if he's writing about misogyny to some degree, he's writing about it as produced by the state to some degree consciously, but some of it also shades over into what seems like his attitude towards women. And certainly like he doesn't really have a woman as a full subject in the book, you know, as somebody who, but then does he have other men as real subjects, it's really hard to say. Like, to what degree is this just the inevitable effect of a, a satire turning every, flattening everybody a little bit and turning them a little bit into cartoons? It's, it's, so it's, it's hard to say, like, to what degree is the misogyny intentional? If you look at his other books, it does seem that he doesn't really, he doesn't really have the capacity to think of women as people separate from their service towards men. Like he does conceive of women as succeeding or failing at being sexual partners and mothers to men. Do you think that, I mean, as someone who's obviously in the process of writing this book, immersed themselves in the history, not just all world, but of totalitarianism, is misogyny a kind of inbuilt feature of totalitarian regimes in a way that's, if you like, you know, a constant or an extractable or a kind of fundamental aspect of them? I think they end up going there in the same way that they end up going to racism. Like there are a couple of things that I, I think Orwell got wrong because he just didn't know in 1984. And one was that he actually, he was actually fooled by the rhetoric of the Soviet Union and thought that it was going to be a post-racist society, which turned out to very, very much not be the case. And another thing was that he really exaggerated. And I'm not sure if this was, I think this really was something that he believed about totalitarianism, but to some degree, he's often commenting on British society as well. So so he exaggerated the degree to which they would be against sex, the whole anti-sex league thing, which I just rolled with. I just went with it anyway. But, but really, that's not where I think the misogyny really came from in those societies. And you, I mean, definitely fascism always, like that's the, the fundamental tenet of fascism. There's actually a writer... Zahar Prilyapin, a Russian writer who I was really fascinated by for a while, who is a fascist. Um, and he wrote a book called Pathology, which is about the Chechen war. And, you know, like indirectly, it's a, it's a novel, but it's about his participation fighting in the Chechen war. And like remarkably for somebody who actually embraces this, <laughs> this philosophy, like he writes about how fascism and men's f fascination with the military comes from misogyny a lot. 
and it's really interesting. Um, and it's weird to like recommend a fascist writer, but in a way, like if you're if you're interested in psychology of fascism, as a fascist, he's really interesting about the psychology of fascism, and he bizarrely makes it sound even more disgusting than you would imagine it to be. Unintended, maybe. I mean, you, you're making a distinction here between fascism and the sort of Soviet totalitarianism that mm-hmm. I would say Orwell's probably tilting at, but, yeah. you know. Um, do you think that distinction, which a lot of the time when we talk about it is collapsed, do you see a distinction that, that's available there? I think, I mean, there's a, there are differences in the way totalitarianism is expressed in different societies, and it's unclear to what degree we're talking about a difference between German totalitarianism and Russian totalitarianism. I think um, definitely the, the mythos is different, and some of the obsessions and the, you know, the emotional paraphernalia are different. Uh, the sort of cult of Orwell... I mean, I'm just interested in how you how you respond to that as someone who knows him and his work well, that he's become a sort of... I'm trying to think of another example, but he's become one of those people who people across the political spectrum kind of treat as, you know, Orwell said. Mm. You know, he's a kind of quotable authority. He's a, you know, look at politics in the English language, which, you know, I tend to think has all sorts of flaws with it as a piece of writing. But, you know, he, he's become one of those sort of touchstones and almost a kind of plaster saint. Do you feel that sort of sells him short or, or misses out the, you know, some of what's peculiar or useful about him? I think it has many different manifestations. Like there, there are a lot of people who feel that way about Orwell because they've read Orwell, you know, because they read Orwell when they were young and they read all of his books and he formed them, like, which I think was true of me. And that, that I think is fine. You know, it becomes more problematic, I guess, when you get to people who maybe read 1984 in school and don't particularly remember it well, but they love to call things Orwellian and to quote Orwell as if, you know, this one sentence that he said is issued from God. And there's a form of bibliolatry about that. It's, it's very, very much like people who are supposedly Christians who will like use the Bible as an authority for things without understanding it or knowing anything about it. And so that can be a pernicious thing, but, um, and just stupid, <laughs> you know, just like, so there's, there's, I think stupidity is frustrating often much beyond its ability to harm us. So you can become extremely angry at someone for saying something that's just ridiculous and dumb. There's a particular, I, I really, I haven't been able to track it down. I saw this Orwell quote, which people love to repeat. Maybe, maybe somebody knows it. Um, it. It's something like any journalism that does not upset anyone is just PR or it's something yeah. like that. It's just public relations. Well, we said before public relations is a really big thing. Maybe. And it's, it's not real. You know, it's like dismissing any form of, of journalism that that doesn't upset anyone. Say, what if there's a flood, you know, and you report the flood? That's not yes. like that's not really true. And actually, you know, maybe most journalism actually is just more like the flood reporting journalism, and it's still worth something. So, so if you if you pause and think about, it, you know, what he means, but also, like, is it really true? Like, is everything something where where somebody has done something that they're hiding that you should be revealing. Yeah, which itself is quite a paranoid point of view. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, there's that kind of 
he is quite a peculiar character, isn't he? Because he's he's really interested in, you know, Soviet totalitarianism. Mm. But as you say, you know, this is a really, really English dystopia. And he was a sort of, um, well, as much as he was on the left in certain respects, you know, he's really socially conservative, isn't he? You know, he's got a sort of beer and Skittles idea of England that is probably not really an obvious feature of the international left now. I think it's it's very interesting. It's a very, um, there is something that his wife said about his essay, The Lion and the Unicorn, which is about British socialism and how Britain should be socialist, which she described it as um, how to be a socialist while Tory. <laughs> and so there is that element of him, which I think is partly, there's a lot of 20th century British socialism had this or even 19th century British socialism had this vein of nostalgia and a longing for a former age. You know, think about William Morris and his medievalism. And I think for Orwell and a lot of people of his generation, the longing for the world before the war, for both world wars, actually, you know, it just repeated itself, was intense and also to to a certain degree rational. It It was just the case that life was better before. So that inevitably infects like his attitude towards, for instance, the Attlee government. He sees it in these sorts of negative terms that aren't really justified by the facts. But life was worse. Life was like objectively worse. I meant to ask you, you've got Attlee in the book. Um, right. Is is that a lift from 19... I can't remember because I haven't read 1984 recently enough. Did he have Attlee as one of Big Brother's Big Bads in 1984, or was that a joke you put in? That was a joke I put in. <laughs> like, he, does, he doesn't use any real proper names of people. So, But I, I thought, like, actually, I, I decided for my book that it was 1984, and in that case, they would have these relationships with these people because I thought it was funny, and I think it is funny still. So, <laughs> <laughs> It certainly is. Uh, Julia is out any day now. Sandra Newman, thank you very much. Thanks so much.